Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. In 1 Peter, it almost sounds like Peter is giving the church a pep talk. Indeed, I think he is. For the Christians to whom he is writing are undergoing persecution and are suffering as a result. Indeed, one of the main themes of 1 Peter is the topic of suffering. They're losing faith, perhaps. They are afraid. Maybe they're wondering if this whole uh, decision to follow Jesus was the wrong one. He seems to be reminding them who they are and why they have every reason to be confident. They are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I hope we can all agree that that is a pretty lofty series of titles. It's almost like Peter is exhausting the language, exhausting the metaphors he can draw on to let these Christians know how powerful they were, how blessed they were. Christians today need a similar pep talk. We have forgotten who we are. We have ceded space after space over to non-Christians, coming to believe that our faith is little more than personal soul building, not a mandate to take God's peace and order and liberty and hope to every corner of the earth. Having lost so much space, oh, now we may have regrets. But we aren't yet ready to abandon the idea that church and state, the state here representing everything that is not church, are totally separate. We have come to believe that myth, comforting ourselves that so long as we go to church on Sunday, we have done all that we can do. And while none of us are personally responsible uh, for the ground lost these past few decades, I am giving you permission to think a little bit differently about how your Christian faith interacts and intersects with this world. After all, I don't think the early Christians believed that this royal priesthood and this holy nation was only ever to be some kind of sideshow, some kind of private group off to the side that had private beliefs that had no applicability outside of the four walls of the church. No, the church was the body of Christ. And in the gospel, Jesus talks about how he and the father are one, that if you know the father, you know the son. If, you, if you've seen the son, you've seen the father. This has applicability across the entire galaxy, you know, the, the universe. There is not a corner of the world that isn't God's. And so if the church is the body of Christ, these are the people of God who had this, this profound message of absolute truth, then it had to be shared with the world. It could not be contained to just a few little congregations. After all, the church possessed the greatest source of knowledge 
imaginable. And they knew that when the world heard it, not only would hearts be changed and not only would souls be saved, but entire civilizations would be upended and transformed. Gone would be the days of the evil temple sacrifices, of tribal warfare, of polygamy, of witchcraft, of the abandonment of children, of dishonest weights and measures. They would all go by the wayside once the world came to trust in the risen Christ. So the early Christian churches They did not just want to be, for example, those seven churches mentioned in the book of Revelation. They they didn't want to stop at seven or eight or ten. They had a mandate to go to all the world and preach the gospel. They wanted the entirety of Christian teaching to be heard all over the world. And isn't that exactly what Jesus says to do in the Great Commission? Sometimes I think even that we have moderated or domesticated. Jesus says, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded. Jesus is not exactly mincing his words here. He's not saying, go to a few places and teach some of what I have taught. He's saying, go everywhere and teach everything that I have taught. No doubt that there was a great desire then to share this great knowledge of the world. The early church still would have had few reasons to be as confident as we are, or we could be. There were very few Christians after all. They had very few resources, and they had virtually no access to power. That's not our situation, and it hasn't been for a long time. But we don't have what, ironically, those first century Christians did have. We don't have confidence. We have come to believe that our Christian faith demands that we can't impose our views or even propose them to other people. Even if every day people uh, of all kinds of beliefs and in every way wish to impose their views onto us. We believe in what has been called the myth of neutrality, that we all share basically common values and we all agree not to go too far in pushing our values on anyone else. And that social pact worked for a while, but its futility is now on full display. You see, there is no actual neutrality. That's why it's a myth. Everyone has a worldview that they believe should be the standard for everyone else. Christians in the hostile world of the first century understood that because the pagans to whom they did ministry certain did not, uh, did not assume a position of neutrality. And yet, in spite of that, the Christians were bold because they believed that they were a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people. And so are we. So here's your pep talk. As Christians, we have every right to every square inch of this world 
not because it's ours per se, but because it's God's. And I'm not saying we should impose our beliefs on the rest of the world, that we go off and fight holy wars, but we should have no qualms about at least proposing our beliefs and defending them as true beliefs. We have nothing to be ashamed of. We should, without fear and without embarrassment, at least try to take hold of every institution we can and suggest that Christian beliefs should be the standard for our communities, our schools, our states, and our nation. If that sounds too radical, let me ask a few hypotheticals. Would it be better if the CEO of Netflix was a believing Christian? Might that in some way impact the content that is created there? Would it be a good thing if Elon Musk's parents had faithfully brought him to church every Sunday? Would it make a difference at all if someone that bright with that much uh, influence was a believing Christian? If you were ever sued and drug into court, uh, would you want the defense or the, the other counsel to be a believing Christian or would it make any difference at all? When our legislators write and debate and vote on laws and the executives sign them and the judiciary reviews them, would you want them all to be Christ followers or would it make any difference at all? Or at a very local level, and I'm stealing this from someone much cleverer than myself, if you're in a dark alley and it's 1030 at night and you see five guys walking towards you, would you rather them be leaving a nightclub or a Bible study? Christians, perhaps in name only, but at least in name, if not in fact, ran or had influence in our media, in our corporations, and our universities, and our government. There are still a few in high levels of those institutions, but not many. Why? I guess because Christians aren't to be ambitious, because we came to believe a lie, the myth of neutrality, that we could and would practice our Christian faith off in some quiet corner of the world, and as a reward for that, everybody would leave us alone and share our Christian values. They would still adopt the Christian worldview, even if they weren't Christian anymore. But that truce is no longer in effect. Christian values are not shared by those who run our institutions. And so Christians, a mighty nation, lest we forget, a chosen race, God's own people, a royal priesthood, must have the courage to either leave those institutions behind and build new ones or reclaim the Christian mandates of those institutions. Some examples. I'm glad, for example, fewer people these days are drinking Bud Light. Finally, there's some cause that we can rally behind and say, this is a step too far, I guess. But, you know, we probably really need to have a conversation about how much alcohol we drink to begin with. 
Uh, we, number two, we're investing in uh, homeschool and online options for college. You know, the four-year degree and experience has very little value in my eyes anymore. Uh, three, why watch traditional media when there are so many other options? Why give them your money? Uh, four, participate in the political process if you want to see it changed. I'm sorry to tell you, it's a pretty dark world. But by all means, we need believing Christians running for every possible office. Now, it may be that we are still too much of a minority today to affect change, to bring about a world where we aren't constantly looking over our shoulder in the parking lot or self-censoring our speech. It might be a while before we can champion large families again, when the thought of handing a phone to a 12-year-old isn't absolutely terrifying for what they might get into. It'll be a while before the culture of death is on the ropes instead of it's enjoying its little perch in the catbird seat. But here's the good news. We'll get there. You know why? Because we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, God's own people, a holy nation, in order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We have been sent to every nation to teach everything that Christ commanded us. So let us have the confidence to see ourselves as God sees us, as a powerful institution in our own right, with good news for the world, not just a scared group of believers waiting for the other shoe to drop. We're better than that. We're more than that. We are God's own people. Amen.